1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul is continuing his discussion with these believers, and he just finished up at the end of 2 talking about the spiritual man and the natural man, and how the natural or unsaved man, not having the Holy Spirit, cannot discern spiritual things. And he says to them in verse 1, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it, and even now you are still not able, for you are still carnal. For where are envy and strife and divisions among you? Are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? So Paul here is going to speak to these believers, and he's saying, there's still something limited in what I can say to you, not because you're unsaved. There's a difference between the natural man that he just talked about and them as believers. Notice he says, and I, brethren, he's speaking to them still as believers, But there's a problem, which is their carnality or their immaturity. Paul's going to call them both carnal and babes. And he's going to say, what I wanted to communicate to you, I'm still limited in communicating that because of where you are spiritually. So he's emphasizing three things. The first being, again, in verse 1, I could not speak to you as spiritual people but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. Spiritual people being what was foremost in them. They were believers, but they were not living spiritually. They were living carnally. A spiritual person, what is foremost, they're not perfect, but what is foremost is the supernatural element that God has done in their hearts and lives. They have the mind of Christ. They have the Holy Spirit. And when you think about their lives, when you see their lives, how they, how he was just speaking about at the end of two, judge things. The way a spiritual person looks at things and the way a carnal believer looks at things are very different. And what Paul is saying is, I couldn't speak to you as spiritual because the foremost thing in them was their natural life, what, what naturally comes without the Spirit of God having changed us or worked in us, we all have that. And the world, they express that on a very daily basis. And it is natural for us to feel like the world, but what God has done in us is something supernatural, something that is different than the natural, my natural attitude or thought process or desires. And that work is supposed to be what is foremost, not just in drastic things, in in everyday life. The way I look at my job, the way I look at my friendships, the way I look at my marriage, the way I look at the Word of God, the way I look at the value of the things I own. On a very practical level, even the simplest things, to spiritually judge them the way God judges them, and to just look at them how any unsaved person would look at them, again, are two different things. And what Paul is saying is, I wanted to talk to you like spiritual people, but I have to talk to you like carnal people, like you're still babes. You're not yet ready to receive those things. And as a teacher, he knows he has to withhold certain lessons. 
Jesus is going to say in John 16 to the disciples, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. He understood they weren't ready to receive certain things. And Paul understands here, they're not ready to receive them either. He said, I fed you with milk and not with solid food. Milk, I think, simply being the simple things, the base things, the things you would receive first, like a baby first receives milk. And not with solid food, which is something you would build off of. For until now, you were not able to receive it. And even now, you are still not able. He says, I understand you're not able to receive these things. Notice he says, not able to receive them. He doesn't say, you're not willing to receive them. Because no doubt, this Corinthian church would have loved to talk about spiritual things and things that have spiritual depth and the philosophy behind spirit. They were into all that type of talk. But the problem was, it was still talk, and they were immature in character. I think we've all been caught in situations where we realize we're talking about things that we don't really know very much about. Like, how did I find myself here acting like I know <laughs> very much about this thing? Right? Because we... We don't actually have the character in that arena, whatever it is. And unfortunately, they didn't have the character in the spiritual world to talk about some of these spiritual things, the solid food that Paul wanted to give them. And theology talk can be very dangerous without a Christ-like life as the aim of it. And Paul knew it's not good to just give them uh, spiritual things that they're not prepared for, which is obvious in their lives, because in the end it will hurt them. To truly, theology is just the study of God, that's all it means. To truly know God and his truth will always cause a demand on a person's life. When I come into contact with the ultimate reality, I have to conform to it. When God reveals truth to me, it's not just a fact, it's a path. And I now have to choose whether to travel on that path or not. Jesus always makes actually knowing things related to obedience. If I don't obey them, I don't actually know them. A P.T. Forsyth says, true theology is warm and it steams upward into prayer. We're not given ideas and concepts about God to be filed away or to be picked up like jewels, watch them sparkle and put them down and leave, knowing I'm never actually going to wear that thing. We're called to, when we receive spiritual truth, live that out. And what Paul realizes is, based on their lives, you're not ready for this. I wanted to give you things that you were not prepared, to, prepared for. I still had to feed you with the simple things. Because that's where you were in life. In your spiritual character. Because they had not developed, notice he says... Even you are not able, still not able, for you are still carnal, verse 3, and where there are envy and strife and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men, particularly unsaved men, people without the spirit? He says, you're not as far along in your spiritual development as you should be. Their behavior is reflective of their immaturity. He says, hey, look. How come you have all this envy and strife and division among you? Look, look at your behavior here. Now, 
this is not an easy thing to say. Can you imagine writing this as a letter to one of your friends? Or how, how would you respond if you received it? Another believer is looking at you and saying, hey, look, you're a carnal believer. You're immature. You're not as far along as you should be. Uh, Paul is not doing this just to slam them. Paul is doing this in love. It's, it's important for them to recognize that their spiritual development has been arrested. That it's not actually what they think it is. Somebody has to say this to them and say it in a way that they love them. Again, and Paul right in the beginning, verse 1, brethren. He's still claiming them as brothers and sisters. He's, he's going to talk about, just in a little bit in the letter, as a, as a spiritual father I'm looking at you. He, he loves these individuals, but he has to say to them, you're not as mature as you think you are, so that they can recognize it. And we, can all, we all have different ways of kind of deflecting immaturity in our lives, particularly in our spiritual lives, and particularly if we're older. Because if we walk with Christ for a certain amount of time, it doesn't mean that we've actually traveled much distance. Age is actually a prerequisite for immaturity. And what I mean by that is, if, if a baby is born, it's immature. It's not supposed to be mature. <laughs> that is normally where it is. The only way I can be an immature carnal Christian is if I get saved and my development is arrested. If there's time that has passed, and because there's time that's passed, I should have made a certain amount of progress, and I have not made that progress. Age, in fact, qualifies me for immaturity. It doesn't qualify me for never being immature. It puts me in the category where now my spiritual development can have been arrested. Everybody who's just saved is spiritually mature, but they're not supposed to be somebody who's been saved for 10 years or 20 years. So what Paul has to say to these believers is, you think you're further along, but you're not. You should be. But look at what your life tells you. Look at what's happening in your midst. Look at what's happening in your home or your friendships or in the people in the lives around you. If that's telling you something, then it's important that you see it. Your carnal still behaving like mere men. He says, for when one says, I'm of Paul, and another, I'm of Apollos, are you not carnal? Don't you realize this has nothing to do with the wisdom of God? This is an evidence of immature thought and behavior. You haven't moved forward very much. And it's important that you see that so that they can begin to move forward. You're carnal, and he says, babes in Christ. You're still little. I mean, most of us understand babies have a certain type of character. They are very cute, and that's wonderful. And they are owned and they are loved. But babies are self-centered. Right? What, what is it? If you're like, I'm not a baby Christian. All right, well, let's play it out. Babies are self-centered. They're always thinking about themselves or what everybody thinks about them, right? They demand perfect conditions or they lose it. They must be noticed. They are a victim of their feelings. You know, you look at a little child and you're like, they can't help it anymore. 
It's late. They lost it. They can't get it back together, right? Their feelings just dominate them. Certainly, they're unaware of larger purposes of life, of people, of circumstances, of joys and dangers. Their world is very small. It just relates to their immediate needs. They consume, as he says here, a very limited diet. They need adults to help them share and get along. And unfortunately, these Corinthian believers, that's what they were like. Paul says, don't you understand? When there's this envying, these divisions, this strife, this carnality among you, it shows that you're still babes in Christ. Not saying they're not saved. He's just saying there's a problem with the development of your spiritual life. And you need to recognize you're not as far along as you think you might be. And that will allow you to be in the place where then you can ask for help and ask for God to help grow you. And you can realize, all right, Lord, here's where I need to work. He's going to move now, as he said in four, he brought back what he did from the beginning of the letter, them saying, I am of Paul, another I am of Apollos. Then in five, he says, who then is Paul and who is Apollos? But ministers through whom you believed, as the Lord gave to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither is he who plants anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. Now he's going to talk about what a mature view of these servants would look like. And Paul makes it clear that ministers of Christ are servants. They're not heads of rival sects or schools like the Greek philosophers were, where they would say, I'm of this person or I'm of Socrates or Aristotle or something like that. I follow this line of reasoning or thought. He said, he and, Apos- he and Apollos, like, who, who is Paul? Who is Apollos? Who, who are we but ministers through whom you believe as the Lord gave to each one? We're just servants. That word ministers, deacons, it's just a servant. He's not even saying like we're apostles or something. He's like, we're just servants that God gave. Me and Apollos, you're acting like you're following us. We just serve. We got hired by the same owner. He owns the garden. He hired us, told us to go do a job. Who are we? That's all we are. We're just servants to him, and you're claiming like you're, you're part of our schools. The difference is in us, what he says here, notice seven, or excuse me, six, I planted and Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. The differences between Paul and Apollos, the differences in what we did, right? Paul pictures himself planting. He's going around putting seeds in the ground, and Apollos is running around with a water can, putting water on everything. He's like, what, what those differences are, no doubt those are the things people were using as justifications to divide into parties. Paul says they were, in fact, God appointed for your good, for the garden. We, we can't have the same job, be the same person. God has a purpose and a goal here. And there's a single owner and purpose and authority behind all they were doing. There's nothing competing here. There's no competition, Paul says. Yeah, I'm planning Apollos is watering. There's no, we're not competing. 
God's the one, the only one who can bring increase. We can't create our own fruit. We can't make anything happen. We just does. We just do the things that he has told us to do. And we allow the Lord to make that the thing that he wants it to be. You know, obviously, we're here at the church. We're just servants, serving. My dad planted. Me and the other pastors are watering. We're, we're just here doing what God has called us to do. Everybody's just a part of what he is actually trying to set up. So neither of them could cause any fruit to grow. Neither of them can make the final thing happen. And Paul says, you're following us, claiming us, dividing amongst one another when us. And he's like, well, we're serving the same master, master and he's the only thing who can make it happen. So how the point is you are carnal. You're looking at this on a carnal human level. You're not looking at this on a spiritual level. The spiritual person would understand these are both God-given servants, even in their differences, all serving the same master for one purpose. And he's the only one who can make the, the fruit, the thing that we really want, to come, to give the increase. So verse 7, neither is he who plants anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Anybody who's a servant of God, all we do is we do what he tells us to do. One of us might be planting. One of us might be watering. God's the only one who makes it happen. Right? You have a, we, we could give too much credit place. You have a, you know, a, a, an evangelist come in and he gives a great message and like 50 people come down and get saved. And they're like, man, that guy was like so powerful. But really their parents have been praying for him for 20 years. And like 10 people witnessed to them the last 10 years, one of them at work, one of their friends. Right? There's been all this work in the background. And then the, the guy does kind of the closing deal. And we're like, man, look at everything that he did or something. <laughs> right? God's been working with all these different servants the whole time. And he's the only one who changes a person's life. And we begin to give human beings the credit for it like they did something amazing. Paul's like, you're not thinking like spiritual believers. Don't you see? We're not anything. God is the only one who brings the increase. We just do what we're told to do. The good part for us is, verse 8, the thing he says we can look forward to, now he who plants and he who waters are one. We got one purpose. We got one master. And each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. Here's, here's what you can look forward to. They can expect a reward in accordance with their labors. We, we are looking for a reward in relation to our master, the one who hired us, the one who called us, the one who's our king, the one that we serve. That's the one we're looking to a reward for. All the tasks that we do, they're appointed by the owner. In the Old Testament, the high priests, when they were breaking down the tabernacle and, and going to carry it and move after the Lord, the high priest appointed the other priests all their jobs. You couldn't just go in there and do whatever you wanted. The high priest told them what to do, which parts they were supposed to take care of and what they were supposed to do. And if you try to touch something the high priest didn't give you permission for, you were put to death. And all of us, we just serve the same high priest. He's the boss. And he just tells us what to do. He gives us our jobs. And our job is simply to do the thing that he wants us to do. 
And when we're rewarded, it's in relation to those labors. Neither Paul nor Jesus Christ is ever afraid to make rewards something that we should look forward to. Sometimes, certainly, uh, especially in realms where works get overemphasized or works are related to salvation, we get nervous about these things. But the Bible is very clear. Works are considered dead for salvation. If I'm trying to work my way to salvation, all those works are dead works. They do not matter. They do not please God. They are filthy rags. But after salvation, works matter very much. Paul says that we should be a people zealous of good works. God has ordained us to good works. There are good works that you and I should walk in them. And that those works, as James says, are a proof of the perfection of our faith or the maturity of our faith. And it's not just the um, success of them, per se, or the production of them, as if I have more works than others, then they're better. It's just the labor of it. That's what the biblical emphasis is. Jesus, when he speaks in the book of Revelation, it's the revelation that God gave to his servants to show his servants right in the beginning. And when he says at the end of it that he's coming back, he says, behold, I come quickly and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. He cares very much about our work. In all the letters that he writes in the book of Revelation to the seven churches, he asks them for unique things, and there's a unique reward given to each one. Each labor has its own subsequent promise of reward. There's numerous crowns mentioned in the Bible for a reason. Because there's no two servants that are the same, and their labor's not the same. And so the reward is given in particular relation to their works. Jesus would say in Matthew chapter 10, he who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. He who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones only a cup of cold water in the name of a disciple, assuredly, I say to you, he shall by no means lose his reward. The smallest labor giving somebody a cup of cold water in the name of a disciple, a little one. Jesus says, it's not going to miss out on his reward. Each reward tied to its labor and its work. It's not the production. It's not the success. It's have I done the thing that he called me to do, that my high priest pointed out to me. We are nothing, Paul says. We just serve the master. He told me to plant, so I plant. Told a palace to water, so he waters. We're given together in his purposes. And all of us, if we just do the thing that he tells us to do, we'll all be perfectly working together in our service to him. And sometimes God will call people to some pretty remarkable work. Uh, George Augustus Selwyn was the first pioneer bishop to New Zealand. And when he went to New Zealand, you guys, New Zealand has those famous pictures from the Lord of the Rings and stuff. It's pretty rugged terrain. And he gets to New Zealand and he wants to travel around to, to find out what his diocese is kind of like, basically. In six months, he traveled 1,400 miles by ship, 
397 by boat, 126 on horseback, and 762 on foot. To just get around to minister to people. That's some work, right? God, God has to serve God. It looks, it's not always easy. It actually looks like some work. Like it's going to take some effort. When Jesus says, well done, he doesn't say well thought or well intended. Well done, my good and faithful servant. It relates to labor, some work, some effort. And sometimes he's going to call people to some prodigious efforts. Like Paul, to travel where he traveled, we could take for granted. It's incredible. That work some believers have done to, to serve the Lord. Very difficult. It's also difficult to serve the Lord with a physical handicap for a lifetime. It's difficult to do something not very extraordinary, but with an extraordinary faithfulness for a long time. Right? It's, hard, it's hard to find a person who will be faithful for 30 or 40 years. Doesn't mean it has to be in a big thing, even just in a little simple thing. But it's a labor of a lifetime. I'm always convicted it was said of that George Augustus Selwyn. Uh, there's a story when he was a kid, him and his friends liked to go out on boats and they'd run. And there was four oars for these canoes they would go on. And the one oar was always really junky. So the other three, the first three guys there would get it and they would be able to go really fast and the last friend would always complain because he had a hard time keeping up with everybody. And then they said Selwyn eventually got to the place where he just came last on purpose all the time so he could take the cruddy oar and work a little harder but keep up with his friends. And it became kind of a thing through his lifetime where people said of him that he always took the heaviest oar. And it's a, it's a picture of somebody who's going to labor to serve the Lord. And what Paul says, we don't claim the labor. What is the laborer claim? They look for their reward from their master. That's, that's what they're looking for. Each his own reward according to his own labor. What God has called them to do. For, he says, we are God's fellow workers and you are God's field, and you are God's building. So what does a mature believer see? They see God's servants, they see God's garden, and they see God's building. It's all his. It's the, human beings are not first and foremost. It's, it's God's picture there. And interesting, Paul combines the two images of the church, both as a plan and as a building. He does that on other occasions. Ephesians 3.17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted, that's a picture of a plan, and grounded in love. That's the idea of a building with a good foundation. And he says, look, you, we're just God's fellow workers. We just get to be a part of what he's doing. It's an incredible privilege. And it's a privilege that you see and get to be a part of, particularly as you're older, uh, you know, a, a child uh, can be a very limited fellow worker. They might want to help, but usually it's a little harder to have them help. But as you grow, you can be more of a help as you mature. And that God will call any of us to be fellow workers is kind of like we're always staying on that tiny level. But for them, 
the opposite was like, don't you guys see? It would be like you're building a building and, and you, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, so like I'm of the carpenters. Well, I'm of the electricians. Well, we're just going to come do our job and we don't care what you guys are doing. I'm not of the drywall guys. Or the drywall guys are like, I'm not of the plumbers. We're just going to do our job. You're going to ruin the house if you guys can't work together. We need one guy running the show telling everybody what to do. But you got to realize we're all part of the same project here. And we all have our different callings. We all have our different jobs. There's a common purpose to be a fellow worker with God. And it's a privilege to be mature enough to join in with the things that God is doing on the face of the earth. Anything he gives us to do. It's one of the things, personally, I'm always blessed when we go to a, a conference. If we have the ECPC here or I'm at another conference with Calvary Chapel guys and you just talk to people and you begin to hear all these stories of things that God is doing all over the place. The different places people are serving, not just pastors, but people are serving in ministry in all different types of ways. And you just hear like, you know what, Lord? You, know, you, you never see any of that stuff on the news. But God's kingdom is happening all over the face of the earth. His garden's growing, his building's being built, and we get to be a part of it. And it's a pretty awesome thing to be any type of part of what he's doing in that project. And Paul shifts from that picture of a garden of the church to the church of a building here. He shows it in other places. He's going to do it in 6, Ephesians 2, 20 through 22, 1 Peter 2, it's picked up. But Paul says, you're not only God's field, you're God's building. Ten, according to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, and that wisdom being the wisdom of God, I have laid the foundation and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold or silver or precious stones or wood or hay or straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. And if anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved Yet so as through fire. Here Paul, Paul begins to lay out an important doctrine in terms of our day at the judgment seat of Christ. Or the bema seat. The word is not used here. It's used in Romans 14 and 2 Corinthians 5. Bema being the Greek word for that judgment seat that Pilate sat on or some of the kings that Paul was brought before sat on. And... <clears throat> Paul, still speaking about the rewards and us being fellow workers, is going to draw out this picture here and this exhortation to them. No doubt he's been speaking about Christian leadership, but he's going to expand that because you'll see he says over and over again, each one, each one, anyone, anyone who builds on these things over and over again in the passage. So it's an exhortation for any individual who begins to involve themselves in building on the work of Christ. Paul said, God gave me wisdom to lay the foundation, the wisdom being the wisdom of God, preaching the message of Christ and determining not to know anything else. And now that that foundation is laid, he says, let anyone take heed how he builds on it. 
This, this foundation of Christ has been laid both in their lives and in the church in general. So he's still speaking about believers here, because notice at the end of 15, he says, if anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. So he's, in, he's not speaking about the judgment of the unsaved world. This isn't talking about purgatory. This is talking about believers, their works, and building on the foundation of Christ, and how that will be rewarded by the master. So uh, I'm going to just kind of refer to this and touch on this here. Next week, I'm going to jump back to this section and cover it a little bit more, because I think just that doctrine of the judgment seat of Christ and what it means to be rewarded and to suffer loss are very important for us as Christians, and they're particularly not talked about very much today. And I don't just want to fly through it or just focus a lot right here and then miss the rest of the passage. So full disclosure, I'm going to touch on it, and we'll come back next week. So if you have questions about that, you could talk to me afterwards, but I might just say, wait till next week (laughs) if we're here. So... Uh, but obviously, Paul is talking about a day where this is going to happen. For Second Timothy 4.8, Paul would say, Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. There is a day where all our works will be judged by Jesus Christ as believers. And the materials are either good materials or bad materials. Paul makes it clear here. People want to kind of argue what are the materials here? Are they works? Are they doctrines? Um, Paul's been talking about teachers. I think it's pretty clear that they're actually both. The two always go together. If I have bad doctrine, I will have bad works. If I have good doctrine, then I'm going to have good works. So uh, to actually know a truth, I will then have good fruit produced in my life. So the, the two are, I believe it's both that are pictured here. It's not just one type or the other. And Paul always addresses both. He addresses both doctrine and Christian life through this letter and many of his epistles. But he's laid this foundation, and the emphasis is then that you can build upon the foundation of Christ in a way that's worthy of it or unworthy of it. And you choose your materials, gold, silver, precious stones, all things that are purified by fire, wood, hay, stubble, things that are burned with fire. Again, Christ is the foundation, and everybody's going to be a part of the process. Each man is building on that foundation. And as we build on that foundation, we should be careful how we are building and what we're building with. Worthy materials are simply everything that we find in Christ that's pleasing to him. Which is a lot of stuff. God's actually very pleased with a lot. It's, it's a large stock. You don't go to this Home Depot and have it empty. There's a lot of things that you can be called to and do that are pleasing to the Lord. A lot of gold, silver, and precious stones out there. They're not actually that hard to use in terms of this parable, this picture that we have here. There's enough for a lifetime of work for anybody who desires to commit themselves to the job. It's out there for us. 
again, there's a lot of pressure for it to be like big things. You know, you can look at Christians who are doing remarkable things and just feel like, I can never do that. I'm just not going to try. But Jesus warns that type of attitude. We can't be the person who buries that money in the ground and then just forgets about it. We have to be the type of people that say, okay, Lord, what have you given me to do? What have you called me to? And I'm going to give myself to that. I'm going to give my life to it. To be honest, just in regular life, if, if you have a family and a job and you try to serve the Lord, you're already pretty full. Like, that's already a pretty full life. It's hard to do a lot of other things. And you're going to have to commit. But what it says here is all those things that are of lasting eternal value, it's going to be worth it. Even a cup of cold water. That there's continuity between this life and the next. And if God gives me one day and I give a cup of cold water of eternal worth on that one day, it's worth it. It's worth it. And I should be careful I'm not building with a whole bunch of wood, hay, and stubble. That's not going to be worth it. Stack up things that are okay for a little bit here or a life that's good for a little bit here. And then is an eternal loss later. Because in the end, everything's tested, he says, by fire. Which harkens back to that one whose eyes are like a flame of fire. Sees everything as it is. And if anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved. Yes, so as through fire. And what Paul's doing is putting our attention back on the Lord. Okay, you guys are saying you're a Paul and Apollos. I'm not going to reward you. I'm not giving you your job. You're not working in my kingdom, on my building, in my garden. You're accountable to him. He's the one who's your master, and he's the one who will reward you. So he adds on this discussion. He shifts it a bit. Verse 16, he says, Do you not know that you're the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? And if anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. So he switches. He says, do you not know, which is a phrase that kind of shifts the argument for us, because Paul will use this nine more times in the letter. I'm not going to tell you where. You're going to have to find out yourself. So that's your homework. And what he's saying is, look, these are, do you not know, it's, it's obviously they probably did know these things. But he's saying you should know these things in a way that would make you further along by now. You should understand this in a more mature way. You probably heard this before. I'm sure he taught them these things. But he's bringing this back to their remembrance. that You should have known this in a different way by now. You should Know it like a 20-year-old, not like a 5-year-old. And that's the problem here. And he now warns them not just about them building a building. He warns them about what kind of building they are. He says, don't you know that you're the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? The word for temple there, there's two kinds of words for the temple in the Bible. The one word in the Greek just means the building itself. And the other word, the word that's used here, speaks about the holy place, the sanctuary where God dwells. 
And that's what he's saying to them. Don't you understand what kind of building you are? You're the place where God dwells. They are that as individuals, he'll say in 1 Corinthians 6, but they're also that collectively as the church gathered together. He's saying, don't you understand? God is walking among you. You you can't just deal with these things lightly. God walked in the garden with Adam and Eve. God then tabernacled with his people in the tabernacle, in the temple. God then came in the form of a man, the son of man and the son of God. And when he ascended, he sent down his spirit and now he dwells in the church. That's that's how he's working in the world today. That's where his spirit is. That's where his presence is in a unique way. And Paul says, don't you understand? You're that now. You're how God is being known in the world. We can take liberties and forget that God's direct presence is a warning to anybody whose intent in the church is not in line with God's intent. God's not playing games with the church. His warning is, if anyone defiles, the word is destroys or corrupts the temple of God, God will destroy or corrupt him. It's the same word there, even though it's translated defiles in the New King James, at least. The, usually it's most often translated corrupt. Uh, Paul talks about the corruption of good habits in 1 Corinthians 15. Satan's attempts to corrupt our simplicity in 2 Corinthians 11. The corrupt, perverse nature of our old man in Ephesians 4. And how the great harlot in Revelation 19, the word is used about how the great harlot literally corrupts the whole world. Their fornications. There's a defilement of something. Something is changed from its real purpose. And what Paul is saying here is, and I don't know all that this warning means. All I can say is God doesn't warn people without a reason. And what he's saying is, don't think you can corrupt the temple of God and have no repercussion from God. The thing that he does here that I do know is he makes God, not humans, the defender of his own holiness. You're going you're gonna to get in a problem with God, not, not people. You, you understand what, what the church is, what this building is, what you are in the world, don't you? Don't you know that? You're how God is working and moving. And you can't mess around with that. God didn't play with the garden. God didn't play with the tabernacle or the temple. God didn't play around with his own son. And he doesn't play around in the church. He thinks about those things seriously. And we're supposed to judge ourselves. The Bible talks about self-judgment. That's the first layer. Then the Bible talks about public judgment when other people come to you and say something. When we refuse to judge ourselves, when the Holy Spirit begins to speak to us and we ignore that or we resist it, what happens is those actions then come out publicly. And what God says is the public should begin to speak into that then. People will come to you and say this is wrong. This shouldn't be that way. Two or more are supposed to come and talk to them. And then the church is supposed to step in. And when we refuse self-judgment and public judgment, then 
you have God's judgment where he steps in and takes care of things himself. So it's a grace if God's Holy Spirit is speaking to you or he's sending other people to correct you. Better heed them than have to make him step in and do it himself. And what Paul is saying is, you don't want to mess with his temple because God's the one who takes care of that. And it's a serious thing to think about to step into his church and have an intent in his church that is not his intent. Now, Paul says, but you have to have a spiritual mind to think about it that way, right? The unsaved or the carnal person is just a building, just a group of people. That's not how God sees it. In verse 18, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. Bringing it all the way back, all the arguments that he started in chapter 1, and he's stating now that ultimately, if, if you think you're wise, if you think you're mature, if you think you have this wisdom, he says, look, give it all up and become wise by grasping God's wisdom. Otherwise, you're going to look like a fool in the end. You're going to find yourself in conflict with God, and all your wisdom is going to come to nothing. Verse 19, for the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their own craftiness from Job 5. And the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. He picks up here from Psalm 94. And Paul's impressing his point again that this was always God's intent. God is not going to let human wisdom trump his own wisdom and purposes. Therefore, let no one boast in men. Don't tie yourself to human beings and their wisdom and their philosophy of life. God is the eternal God, and his thoughts have not changed with the times, which is what a lot of people want to say. It's a good question to ask people sometimes. Do you think God's changed his mind? Because he doesn't change his mind. He's eternal. He doesn't get old because he's outside of time. He, he says what he has said, and it will be true from before time to the end of time. There's a story in the Old Testament, really weird one, Joshua. Most, most of us know Joshua marches around Jericho, the walls fall down. But there's another part of the story that we can forget where after the walls fall down, Joshua puts a curse on the foundations of Jericho and says anybody who tries to rebuild these gates and these walls, the gates, their first son will die, the walls, the second son will die. And a couple hundred years later, this guy, Hiel, shows up and probably thinks that was just some weird mumbo jumbo that people talk about. God's probably changed his mind. And his sons die as he tries to build those things again. Just because a couple hundred years passed didn't mean God changed his word or his mind or because people thought it was stupid or weird. God's eternal. Doesn't change his mind. Doesn't change his purpose. His word is wisdom. There's no sense boasting in men or in the wisdom of men. And Paul is trying to make it clear, if you want to be wise in the end, you want to be found with God's wisdom. 
Don't, don't boast in any human beings. You, should regard, you shouldn't regard any of your fellow servants as masters. This is a very humble thing for Paul, right? People don't, people don't talk like this nowadays, where Paul's like, I'm nothing. You shouldn't regard me. You shouldn't boast in me. Nowadays, we'd love it if people, I'm a Paul or I'm of this person. And Paul's saying, no, that just shows that you're still babes in Christ. You understand? We're all just the same servants, serving the same master. Yeah, we have different jobs, but God has ordained those. He's given everybody their work. We look to him for a reward. He's the one we're accountable to. You can't boast in the wisdom of men. It's going to all come to nothing. Don't boast in human beings. That's not where you want to find yourselves. They're just your fellow servants. You don't have to boast in me, Paul. Don't have to boast in me literally or Pastor Joe or Calvary Chapel. We can love what God has done and be appreciative for, for those things. But we don't glory in those things. We glory in him and who he is. And Paul shows them we don't lose anything by that. Notice he says, don't let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world or life or death, or things present or things to come, all are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God's. He shows them, you haven't lost actually anything in this. I guess if I, it might be easier to trace what he's saying by going backwards, right? We have God. And God has given us his son, Jesus Christ. As we saw in Romans, Paul basically says, Jesus is the inheritor of all things. And then he shares all things with us because we become co-heirs with him. So he's like, the world is yours. Except it's going to be better. You're going to have a new heavens and new earth and there's no more sin or anything that defiles or death or pain. The world's yours. Life and death are yours. They're going to all work God's purposes. They're going to all work to your benefit in the end, however it all works out. And then all the way down to the servants, the various servants, Paul, Cephas, Peter again, Apollos, they're all yours. God's, God's given all these things to work for you. You don't have to split them up and argue over them. They're for everybody. You don't have to fight like little toys, ripping them out of each other's hands. Mine, mine. That just shows that you're babes in Christ. God's already given you all these things. Paul in his ministry, Peter in his ministry, Apollos in his ministry, they're all for their blessing anyway. There's no fear in those things. They should see God's good hand in them. Again, I'm, I'm thankful. There's some people who fear to claim believers of other denominations or thought or read books from believers with other theological persuasions or from other denominations. I've been very thankful for my father and the people here who have given me a rich Christian history that we have. All God's servants belong to me. I don't hold all their theology, but I could read a whole lot of books and get tons of blessing from those things. And then the things that are weird, I just reject. Right? I'd be like, oh, when we get to like heaven, that'll be great. And you and I have been put in this incredible position nowadays where essentially some of the richest Christians from all the ages, we have their writings and their truths at immediate access. Like Anselm, Augustine, Athanasius, people like A.W. Tozer or Watchman Nee or C.S. Like you, 
you can have the wisdom of the ages, basically, if you want it. It's just been gifted to you. You can find it almost anywhere. And you know, some people are afraid to claim those things, but God has given all these incredible godly people to his church through the ages. They look different. They work different ways. They weren't perfect. None of them were. Jesus was. And then the rest of them have his spirit. And they have extended God's work in some beautiful ways. And they're all a part of the big plan. And God's going to make it all happen. So I can own not all their theology, but I can own all their gold, silver, and precious stones. And it can enrich me. I don't have to fight about it. We can be blessed by those things. And you are being blessed by those things, whether you know it or not. And what Paul is saying here is, you guys are... You used to be saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos. What you should just be saying now is, I'm God's in Christ Jesus. And if I can say I'm God's in Christ Jesus, then all those things are mine. They all work for my good. I can receive the blessing out of them, and I don't have to have them competing or isolating one another or working against one another. I can receive them for the blessing that they are. And Jesus will take care of all the chaff and all the reward. And what I should be most thoughtful of is him and my accountability to him and what he's called me to do. And that will be a spiritual mindset and would allow him to speak to them as spiritual people in Christ Jesus. So let's stand. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you know where each of us is before you. You know we all have immaturity in our lives in various areas. And we all need you to point those things out. We can't see them if you don't help us. I pray you be gracious in your Holy Spirit to teach us. And I pray you give us humility to receive the things that you shine your light on. Because we know, Lord, it's only for our good. And all that you give us, Lord, for our blessing and our enrichment, I pray that we would see it and realize this from you and turn back to give you thanks, give you praise for it. So, Lord, you know what that looks like for each of us. You are again, the best teacher, and you sent your Holy Spirit to lead and guide us in the truth. So allow us to be faithful, Lord, laborers. You told us to pray that you would send forth laborers into your harvest, and I pray that you would make us, Lord, laborers in your field. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.